happy Sabbath again. This uh, song that we're going to be playing for you is number 154, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You know, we're not perfect people, are we? We're striving, but Jesus shed his blood so that we can be perfect. When we look at that cross on which the Prince of Glory died, we see a love that's amazing. And I just pray that as we go through this service, as we play for you, that you will behold his love for you. title of my message today comes from that passage, 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. 
Perhaps you saw the story that came out on the news this week. Sarah Guerin was driving on a lonely expressway in East Tampa, east of Tampa, Florida, in the wee hours of the morning, last Saturday morning. As she saw a vehicle coming rapidly towards her in her lane, the events that unfolded over the next moments would change her life forever. As she slowed, she started desperately trying to flash her, desperately flashing her lights at the oncoming driver, but to no avail. It seemed like the driver was on a suicide mission and her life was about to end. At the same time, Deputy John Cotfila, who had been driving behind her, made a split-second decision. He took in the situation, and he realized he had only one choice, only one chance to save the driver in the vehicle ahead of him. He maneuvered his vehicle around Garen's vehicle and into the path of the oncoming SUV. Garen watched in horror as moments later, the deputy car in front of her exploded in a head-on collision with the SUV. Deputy Katfila was critically wounded, but the impact stopped the SUV and saved Garen's life. How would you respond if you knew that someone, a total stranger, had died to save you? Speaking at his memorial on Monday, Sarah Guerin said, I was a random person on a random road at a random time. I didn't know him, but I love him for saving me. It's not hard to see the parallels with the Christian faith. The death of Christ on the cross is universally understood as the central doctrine, the central teaching of Christianity. But despite its centrality to the Christian faith, there are many viewpoints, many opinions. Many people still ask the question, why? Why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die to save you and me? Wrapped up in this question, too, is our understanding of the nature of God, our understanding of the nature of Christ, of God's government, of God's law, and our understanding of the nature of sin. Some picture God as aloof, one who is so angry at sin and sinners that he requires the sacrifice of his own son to appease his righteous wrath. Why did Jesus die? Why was it so necessary? Was God so unwilling to save human beings that it required a human sacrifice to appease his wrath? We read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God was not unwilling. God loved even before he gave. In fact, he loved so much that he gave. In another view, it is not Christ, it is not God who needs appeasement, but rather a ransom that must be paid. Christ's sacrifice is seen as a payment of a great ransom. The human race is, as it were, kidnapped by Satan, held for ransom. As it says in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to serve, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus did pay a ransom, but I don't believe that Jesus had to die 
so to speak, in order to pay off the devil. I think the Bible teaches a deeper truth, a more fundamental truth, one that it has fundamental implications in our understanding of the character of God and of his law. Others reject the concept of a substitutionary atonement altogether in, view of a, in favor of a view which is known as the moral influence theory. Even this past week, I read a, uh, an article posted on Facebook entitled, Who Killed Jesus? The author of the post argues that Jesus did not have to die to satisfy any heavenly or otherworldly mandate, but rather that Jesus fell victim to the jealousy of human beings and died as a martyr to demonstrate the grace and love of God. No, no doubt Jesus did demonstrate God's grace and love in his death. But the moral influence theory teaches that Jesus came to demonstrate God's love and only to show us how to live a holy life. While it's true that we must follow Christ's example, this view falls short of explaining Christ's ultimate sacrifice. If God had only wanted Jesus to show us a good example, he would have stopped Christ's death short, just as he stopped short the death of Isaac at the hand of Abraham. It's enough. Jesus has demonstrated how to live a holy life. But no, God did not stop short before the death of Christ. How do you understand Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane when no human was around? How do you understand that in light of Christ coming only to give us a good example? No, the Bible is clear that Christ died as a sinner's substitute. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. And he himself, speaking of Christ, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that's a huge word. That's a big mouthful of a word, and we don't use that word in our everyday language. What does that word propitiation mean? If you look that up, you see words like atonement, a substitute, someone who paid. There's the concept of paying for the sin. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, the, the prophet, looking forward to the coming Messiah, says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible is clear. Christ died as the sinner's substitute. Christ did not come to appease the wrath of God. Rather, we understand that Jesus and God are one. You know that verse where, where Philip says to, to Christ, to Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus says, have I been so long with you, Philip? Have you not seen me? I and my Father are one, Jesus says. God himself poured out himself in the person of Jesus Christ, in his great love. He laid down, God laid down his own life in the person of his son in order to save you and me. I love how Mrs. White writes it in the Desire of Ages. Christ was treated as we deserve so that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins 
in which he had no share, so that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death. He suffered the death that was ours, that we might receive the life that was his. With his stripes, we are healed. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, friends, tells us about God's love. More than that, the sacrifice of Christ tells us something about the importance of God's immutable law, the foundation of God's government. When man broke God's law in the very beginning, it created, as it were, a dissonance in the universe. God's law had been broken. Man had been separated from God. Man who had been made in the image of God was now cut off from him. Apart from God, there can be no life. And man must reap the consequences of his sin. The wages of sin is death. There were but few choices. One, man could die, the natural result of his sin. But then the charges that Satan had leveled against God, that God is cruel, vindictive, even sadistic, might be upheld in the minds of his created beings. That's one option. There's a second option. God could abrogate his law. He could just simply overlook the sin, just this once, and say, as it were, it doesn't matter. He could say to fallen human beings, overall, you're generally pretty good. I'll make a little exception here. I'll make an adjustment to your account, and we'll forget that you've ever done anything wrong. But think about the implications of such a decision. If God were to make such a, such a statement, ultimately, such an arrangement would be a, not only a violation of justice, but a violation of all of the law of heaven, the government of heaven. No longer would God be supreme. No longer would it matter whether any of his creatures followed anything that he said. And it wouldn't be just eating an apple from an apple tree. But as we have seen demonstrated in this world, right here, the results of sin inevitably leads to anarchy and death and misery. And you name it, that is the result of sin. Could God tolerate that forever for the rest of the universe? God would no longer be God. God would no longer be God if his subjects refused to obey him. If he could not somehow convince his subjects to follow his, his rule, God would no longer be God. So there was a third option. An option that would, on the one hand, save or provide the opportunity of saving men and women. And on the other hand, would also uphold the law and the government of God. That is, God could provide a substitute he didn't have to. Nothing coerced him to. He could have let man die and been totally just. But because of his love, he chose to give himself in the place of the sinner. You see, sin is kind of like that speeding car, speeding in the wrong direction on the freeway. By its very nature, 
it's going to kill someone. But Christ stood in our place. Christ took the blow. In John chapter 10 and verse 17, turn with me there to the Gospel of John. Read this, read this this afternoon. If you have a few minutes, read the entire chapter of John chapter 10. A beautiful chapter, but I'll just take a few verses here. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And he goes on to say in verse 30 that Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Jesus lays down his life willingly for you and for me. And in that text that we began with, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, speaking of Christ's last supper with the disciples, says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, friends, as we partake of Christ's body, as, as we partake of, this, of the emblem, it is the last, as it were, remaining step in salvation. You see, not only does Christ place himself between us and that speeding car, we also have to align ourselves behind him. We cannot go apart from him. We have to, in, this, in the symbol that he gave us of the bread and the wine, we have to partake of his life, to allow his life to infill us, to infuse us, to take the sin out of our hearts. His redemption is twofold. One is forgiveness an atonement, a substitutionary atonement in the second is to redeem us entirely from the sin so that it no longer has dominion in our lives. And as we partake of Christ, we partake, first of all, of his forgiveness. But secondly, we partake of his imparted righteousness, which is his life lived out through you and through me. Again, in the in the Gospel of Matthew, we find uh, the the same passage written in Matthew twenty six, verses twenty six through twenty eight. Again, Jesus alludes to the substitutionary nature of his atonement. Speaking of the cup, drink ye all of it, for this is the blood of the new testament, which is shed for many. For the remission of sins. Friends, I want to ask you today, as we partake of the ordinance of humility, as we partake of the symbols of the bread and the wine, have you placed yourself in the shadow 
of his almighty keeping? Have we accepted his substitutionary death? And do we go forward to live not on the strength of our own food, but on the strength of his broken body and shed blood? At this time, we will separate. The uh, ladies will stay here. The men will go downstairs for the foot washing and we will reconvene here shortly to partake of the symbols of the bread and the wine.